0: You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today has quietly become one of the dominant forces in Lincoln's scholarship over the last ten years. In 1998, he published Honor's Voice, the Transformation of Abraham Lincoln, a brilliant study of the young future president. His new book, published in December 2006, is Lincoln's Sword, The Presidency and the Power of Words. In between, he co-edited with Rodney Davis two landmark books, Herndon's Informants and Herndon's Lincoln. Please join us for a conversation with Douglas Wilson on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Hi, Tom Beaudet from Motel 6 with a word for business travelers. Seems business has its own language these days, full of buzzwords, like buzzword or net-net. And after a day spent whiteboarding a matrix of action items and deliverables, it's nice to know you can always outsource your accommodation needs to the nearest Motel 6. You'll get a clean, comfortable room for the lowest price, net-net, of any national chain plus data ports and free local calls in case you tabled your discussion and need to reconvene offline. So you can think of Motel 6 as your total business travel solution provider vis-a-vis cost-effective lodging alternatives for Q1 through Q4, I think. Just call 1-800-4MOTEL-6 or visit motel6.com. I'm Tom Bodet for Motel 6, and we'll maintain the lighting device in its current state of illumination for you. Motel 6 and Accor Hotel.
0: World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a delightfully clear and brisk autumn day in 2006. But the weather is not the responsibility of East Carolina University, nor is this program in any way, although I am using their telephone in their office. Otherwise, the legal connection is uh, tenuous at best between the two enterprises. Uh it's always good to be back doing the show on a Friday. The commercial um, commercial messages that we hear each week uh, have been the same for some weeks now, to the point where I can recite almost the entire thing in my sleep, and uh, perhaps the, the overlords at World Talk Radio will replace them with other ones. As far as I know, they are simply placeholders. They're not actually getting paid for the commercials, and the ideal thing would be for a listener of this show, who is also a, a, a major investor of some sort, to buy a commercial and advertise some Civil War-related product. Uh, I don't know that this would uh, profit anyone, perhaps other than World Talk Radio, but it would be good for, uh, for us to listen to. In the meantime, uh, your contributions to the show are always welcome to help defray the expensive books uh, that, that uh, I buy to read before each show. Uh, Thanks are due once again to Ricky Hildebrandt of Massachusetts. I thanked him last week, but can never do so enough for his generous support of the show. The contributions, the lawyers remind me, are not tax-deductible. It's just like you're giving me a gift. Uh, Well, enough chatter. Almost enough chatter. Uh, This is the last class day of the semester here at East Carolina, this fall semester of 2006, and the angst of final exams fills the air as does the angst of the ongoing tenure process. Today's guest, Douglas L. Wilson, was generous enough to take the time to review my portfolio uh, last summer during the tenure review process and uh, has, has contributed enormously to helping it go forward to the point where, as, uh, as one of my uh, other reviewers put it, uh, In writing, nothing can stop you now except the unlimited perversity of academics. (laughs) Uh, So uh, hopefully that won't uh, come into play, but but we're keeping the fingers crossed, and we'll wait and see. But enough about me. Let's find out what the guest thinks about me. Uh, Doug, are you there? Yes, I am. I'm I'm just rambling on a bit here. Uh, The end of the semester has has me uh, giddy with fatigue. Uh, I don't know how you guys are doing there at Knox College. but
2: uh, uh, We have turned them loose.
0: Uh, they're gone. Yes. Good. Good for for that. But I
2: wanted to say, Jerry, that uh, your uh, the uh, portfolio that I reviewed was very impressive. And uh, I don't know how much your listeners know about what you've done, but you've uh, you've accomplished quite a lot.
0: Well, well, thank you. I, I try to tell them as often as I can in, <laughs> in subtle ways, but it's better to hear it from from you. Um, that was John Y. Simon, our, our mutual friend, who had the line about the unlimited perversity of academics. uh, he, uh
2: He's a man of great lines.
0: He is. Uh, it's uh, always interesting to hear from him. But uh, today I'm, I'm delighted that you could be on the show with us. I just this morning finished reading uh, your new book, Lincoln's Sword, and enjoyed it tremendously. With an effort of will, I'd like to hold off till the second segment talking about it. Sure. Um, but uh, start just with a little bit for our listeners who perhaps haven't uh, made themselves familiar with your work yet. Uh, You've been in the Lincoln world for uh, you know well over a decade, but you made your name with Jefferson first what what brought you to switch uh, What were you doing with Jefferson and how did you come to switch?
2: Um, I got into Jefferson my, my field is literature American literature i was I was going to write a book about the agrarian ideal in American literature the uh, idea that you find all over the place in various forms that the best life is the country life, and that city life is inherently um, inferior. And uh, so I traced that idea, like so many things in American culture, to Jefferson. He seems to be the one who starts promoting that idea. Of course, he, it wasn't his idea. He got it from the classics. Horace is always writing about this. But um, I got so interested in Jefferson uh, that I sort of got swallowed by the whale, And uh, I was interested in his reading in his uh, early life, especially as when he was himself uh, an avid student of literature. I got interested in his uh, uh, commonplace book, and I ended up uh, being invited to do an edition of the commonplace book. And uh, one thing led to another, and I spent um, 10 or 12 years uh, writing about Jefferson. But then I got the idea, I'm not sure exactly where it came from, to make a comparison between Jefferson's reading, which I knew a lot about, and Lincoln's reading, which I didn't know a lot about, but I knew that they were very different. One was, they were at different ends of the economic and social scale, And um, but at any rate, everybody seemed to think that both men owed a great deal to their early uh, formative reading. So I started to study. Uh, lincoln's reading and that of course got me into herndon's uh, material and as you know herndon uh, after lincoln's death decided he wanted to write something about lincoln but he didn't know very much about lincoln's life before he had met him i think he met lincoln when he was about thirty years old or something so mm-hmm. he began to correspond with people who knew him in kentucky when he was a little boy and indiana where he grew up and uh... interviewing people who had known him in New Salem who most of whom were still around and um, Herndon was uh, had all of these materials uh, the story of what he did with them is a different story but what I had to do since they are they weren't published and they weren't indexed is you have to get you can either go to the library of congress and sit down and spend a, a couple of weeks reading them or you can get microfilm and um, and read in your spare time And that's what I did, and I read my way through all of those papers, and I was just amazed at what I found. I thought there were marvelous things in there, and things that challenged what I thought I knew about Lincoln. And uh, so anyway, after I wrote my piece about uh, the comparative piece about Lincoln's and Jefferson's early formative reading, um, I persuaded my uh, colleague, Rodney Davis, with whom I'd been teaching team teaching for years at Knox College, to um, go in with me and edit these uh, materials because I was persuaded from what I had read that these materials, which incidentally were in rather bad odor with historians, had not really been understood. They had only been known piecemeal and nobody had a chance to read them through unless they were willing to put in the kind of dedication that uh, very few scholars had been willing to do. And uh, so that's I guess that's a long answer to your question of how I got into. It. I and then, having been swallowed by the Jefferson Whale, I got swallowed by the Lincoln Whale.
0: So, uh, so, so you had your own microfilm copy of the material that William Herndon had collected, and Herndon, yes. of course, was, was Lincoln's law partner for much of their Yes, much of Lincoln's legal career, and so now you've got a copy of it, and, and you and Rodney Davis decide to edit. Yes, this material. Then, uh, well, well. Let, let's skip uh, ahead. You ended up doing it and publishing it uh, under the title Herndon's Informants. That's right. But you mentioned it was not in, uh, in in high repute. Why didn't historians like this material beforehand, uh,
2: at least? You know, that's one of the things that I had to trace back. When I I didn't bother to read the historians, the Lincoln historians. Um, when I was working with those materials, uh, I knew a little bit about Lincoln, and I knew a little bit about Lincoln biography and scholarship, but I had not looked at it carefully. When I got through reading it, I thought, you know, that I, I don't understand. I thought that the Ann Rutledge story had been shown by scholars to be a myth. And here's all this testimony that I found in here. I think I, when I counted it up, it was two dozen people who talk about this. Um, as something that really happened in their own experience, these are people who were there at the time. Um, some of them didn't have, don't claim to have had direct knowledge. That is, they weren't told by Lincoln or by Ann Rutledge. But, but, many of them were. Said, "Well, Lincoln told me," and some said, "Ann told me," and so forth. So I thought, I don't, I don't get it. I, why is this a myth? Uh, this, this sounds to me like a, a slam dunk. So I started to read up uh, what people had said about Ann Rutledge. Then I I discovered that beginning in the 1930s, um, the professional historians who were taking over Lincoln Studies from essentially amateur scholars um, uh, were very unhappy with the, the kind of evidence that Herndon used because almost all of it was after the fact. Reminiscent material; it was quite subjective. It was, it wasn't, no attempt to be objective, Um, and it was subject to all the problems of memory. Uh, And it didn't agree. The the people would say one thing, and some people would say another, and they didn't quite jibe. And for this reason, these were legitimate reasons of historical scholarship, not prejudice. Um, They began to question Herndon's materials. Um, in this uh, atmosphere, uh, a young student of the great scholar of the age, uh, James G. Randall, the great Lincoln scholar, um, wrote uh, was as a, as a dissertation under Randall, um, David Donald wrote uh, a piece about Herndon and then went on after uh, he'd gotten his doctorate to write a full-length biography of Herndon. Uh, and in that book, published in 1948, he emphasizes Herndon's foibles, and he emphasizes all of these things that I mentioned about this evidence. Uh, and he followed pretty much the conclusion of his mentor, which was that this uh, isn't acceptable historical evidence. This is, uh, this is too faulty. And um, what I argued, well, I decided that I was going to take them on about this, because I thought this evidence was pretty good evidence. So I argued in my um, article that I wrote about the Ann Rutledge evidence that if we followed the standards that um, Professor Randall set up, that it had to be first-hand, it couldn't be second-hand, that it had to be corroborated, um, that... uh, In other words, he sets up a standard that's not unlike um, what you would have to do to prove beyond a reasonable doubt for, in, a, in a criminal case. Uh, and and I argue that anything, if, we, if we set up those standards, we can't prove anything about Lincoln's early life because none of the evidence about it would meet those standards. So I argued that you can, you have to, you have to. Uh, I argue that people were using a double standard, and they and they in fact admitted it. In other words, if you liked what Herndon said about Lincoln from this kind of evidence, you used it. If you didn't like it or you objected to it in some way, you had some reason to dispute it. You could say this is just this is just uh, Herndon's evidence. It's just hearsay. It's just uh, reminiscence. And that situation from there on got worse and worse because. Uh, Donald had criticized uh, Herndon and his methods, and and actually, um, uh, very very convincingly, um, uh, this this set a trend, and people began to badmouth Herndon, and Herndon's um, Herndon's name began to Herndon, as I put it, was in the doghouse of Lincoln scholarship. Uh, even though people continued to use all of his materials. Um, and they were talking about Lincoln's pre-presidential life. They would be crazy not to. And um, and if you ruled it all out of bounds, we'd have almost nothing left to talk about.
0: I think Michael Burlingame used the phrase: uh, that "This was the nuclear waste of uh, yes." Uh, you, nobody said. could touch Herndon's materials. Treat
2: Herndon's materials like uh, nuclear waste.
0: Yeah. That I, I'm struck by your uh, discussion on how you you entered. Lincoln studies by reading this primary source of evidence, by reading Herndon's material. And it, it reminds me of two other books that are based on people who came to the Lincoln world not by reading Lincoln historians, but by delving into primary sources first, uh, both of whom read the, the Lincoln's collected works before they read any biographies. Uh, one was Gabor Borat, and the other was Lerone Bennett. Uh-huh. So they both produced very original books. Uh, yes. Uh, very different books. Yes. But I, I think there's a lot to be said for this practice of just starting with the materials and, and not being uh, influenced by what previous historians may have said about things. Uh,
2: yes, I, I, uh, I published a collection of my essays. During the 90s, while we were working on this material, I wrote a series of essays because I thought it was important to to try these things out, to give scholars a look at what I was talking about and let them take their best shot. Um, and so I wrote a series of essays, and the University of Illinois published it in '97. It's called Lincoln Before Washington. And I argue in there that, um, uh, that the, uh, that, that I I try to say, I I try to admit straight out and and not, um, fool around about it that I, I come to Lincoln studies through the back door, as it were. And, um, and that's, I think, part of the difference of my perspective uh, part another part of the difference of my perspective on Lincoln is that I've always thought of him as a writer and uh, that was my primary interest in Lincoln for a long time um, and that comes back to
0: the fore in the in the new book now, in in looking at this evidence that Herndon compiled your first chapter in, in the book Lincoln's uh, or honors voice uh, the transformation of Abraham Lincoln you describe one of the legendary episodes in Lincoln's life in New Salem when he first arrives and is challenged to a wrestling match by the local bully, Jack Armstrong. Yes. And well, if, if I tell students, okay, I have a 60 page essay on a wrestling match that is entirely, that consists of nothing but conflicting accounts of this very, really small and trivial event. The reaction is not a positive one, Uh but when you actually read it, it is fascinating. uh, How how you pull apart this evidence and and talk about what we can and can't know of history. Uh, Any reason why you chose that particular episode?
2: Yeah, I. One of the reasons, one of the things my book was about, I thought, was the, in a way, the reclamation of Herndon's evidence, uh, and by extension, all evidence of that kind. Um And so I thought of it as uh, as an example. I, I argue in my preface um, that this is what's at stake really in this book, not just Lincoln Biography, but what we can do with this kind of evidence, and that we have to grant all of the all of what Professor Randall said about this evidence is true. It is subjective, it is after the fact, Some of it is... Uh, after many, many years have passed, and we all know, especially those of us who were a little older, what happens to your memory, uh, in that time. And, and uh, I know as well as anybody that, um, that I have thought I remembered things very well, and then I found conclusive evidence in a letter or something that it wasn't really that way at all. It was, it was something different. So we have to grant that. Um, retrospective uh, reminiscence is prone to error uh, that's, it's only natural and so we have to use it carefully and gingerly and with that in mind but I wanted to show in this book that we have to do that in the case of Abraham Lincoln's early life because we don't have anything else and, and who would willingly throw all of this information away? Nobody would in fact everybody uses it so I was trying to argue that it's possible to use this uh, evidence, even when it's highly conflicting, and, and arrive at something. Uh, and so I used the wrestling match because of the fact that there are so many conflicting uh, versions of it. And and I had pointed out before that even though Professor Randall and his condemnation of the Ann Rutledge evidence. Uh, condemned it and literally threw it out for all of these reasons. He did not throw out the wrestling match, which comes from the same people, the same witnesses, in the same form, letters and interviews with Herndon. Um,
0: I'm going to uh, step in for a minute because we're going to take a short break, but we're going to come back in just a moment, talking more with Douglas L. Wilson about Abraham Lincoln and especially his writing in Wilson's new book, Lincoln Sword. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio.